Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. I emphasize encourage community because I believe that we humans are tribal animals and we do better, we are healthier, and we are happier when we live in relatively small tribes. Tribes could be a 10 or a 100, perhaps even as many as a 1,000. But when we know everyone by name, or at least by face, we get along very well. Crime levels are very low. Cooperation and collaboration are very high. Human beings love doing things together, whether it's a sewing circle or a poker game or watching a football game or going for a bike ride, all kinds of inventing things together, creating things together. We are really cooperative, collaborative animals. We love eating together, getting together in circles and sharing food. That's who we are. However, we also must be cognizant of the fact that a very small percentage of us, much less than 5%, are not the same. They are very different. They are predators. They would have us be their subjects rather than have us be citizens. And throughout all of history, we have had to deal with these predator types who have gotten people to follow them and have then directed mostly young people to go out and kill others. This has been true through all of recorded history, going back to the Egyptians, fast forward to the Greeks, to the Romans, who also experimented with democracy and republic. When Caesar crossed the Rubicon, ended the Roman Republic and formed an empire with a dictator. Go through, fast forward anywhere you want in history. Napoleon, Hitler, Mussolini, the wannabe dictator Trump. These are all people who would have a different way of life. And those of us who are in the great majority, the over 95% who are cooperative and collaborative we must stay awake and aware and vote and ensure that we maintain our democracy and our republic. Even in hard times such as these, when my heart goes out to 60% of the American public who are living paycheck to paycheck, being concerned for food on the table and paying rent, even those of us suffering in that regard, must stay awake, must stay awake as citizens and must vote and ensure that we maintain our democracy and our republic. In the words of one of my great heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health and Politics, we have the privilege of having with us Jessica Fern who is a pioneer in experimenting with alternative forms 
of human relationships, alternative to what has been considered the traditional heterosexual monogamous way of relating. I say considered traditional because it isn't traditional throughout all of history. One-on-one monogamy, heterosexual monogamy, has not always been the traditional form. That's somewhat recent. And she has looked at this. She has experimented with this in her own life. And she's written some wonderful books about this. And we're going to learn today from Jessica Fern. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Jessica. Thank you, Richard. Jessica, I was uh, in reading your books. I realized that we... um, we're both project kids from New York. You, are you? you <laughs> are you kidding? Where did you grow up? I, I, well, I started out, I actually grew up partly in the swamps of Florida <laughs> because my, my father was stationed at an Air Force base down there. It was a secret Air Force proving ground for jet propulsion. And I had the good fortune to go along with him. But then afterwards... We came back to New York City, and I lived in Stuyvesant Town. Oh yeah, which was which is a, a project, a, a, a metropolitan life insurance project. <laughs> yeah. and that's you, amazing. Yeah, you lived in one in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And yeah, in the Sheep's Head Projects in Sheep's Head so, Bay. Yeah, New York kids. New York project kids. Yeah, and we both made it. To California, though, are you living in California these days? I see you're in North Carolina. I'm in North Carolina, yeah, but a lot of my heart is in California. What drew you to North Carolina, Jessica? Um, There was, we're outside of Asheville now, and so we had been moving around a bit, and for family reasons, we wanted to be back on the East Coast. Um, There's a specific school here that really fits well for my son. So there was a few different things that led us here. And what uh, what size uh, city or town do you live in? Um, Asheville is pretty smallish. I'm going to say maybe 80,000, but I need to look that up. <laughs> oh, are you near Ashland or in Ashland? Asheville. Asheville, Asheville. North Carolina. Yeah. Yes. We're just outside. Yeah. I see. I, I live in a very small town of about 7,500 in Mendocino County. I think that's ideal. So, so this program is an opportunity for the people that I curate to express what's most important to them about what they're working on, either in their lives or in their science or in their writings. Mm-hmm. And this whole arena of alternative forms to heterosexual monogamy is your arena. Mm-hmm. It has been. Let's, it has been. Mm-hmm. So let's take it from the top. How did you start entering what drew you into this arena originally? And then tell us what the landscape looks like. Mm-hmm. What are these words that we hear, such as polyamory, such as consensual non-monogamy yeah Uh, 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 but first tell us what drew you in and then the development of what it is what it stands for take it from the top great 
I think part of what drew me in was just being an adolescent in New York and realizing around 14 years old that I wasn't straight, um, that I was bisexual, and the experiences that led from that. And so as someone who's bisexual, assuming monogamy is just an interesting thing, right? Of Oh, does that mean I'm committing to one gender or sex for the rest of my life and this other desire in me or attraction um, doesn't happen? So it was something that on my own I was thinking about um, and, and deconstructing. But it really wasn't until... Um, you found this out as a teenager. I did, yeah, yeah. And what what was it? What was it like as a teenager in New York, realizing that you're attracted to both men and women? That's a lot for a teenager to take on. Yeah, in some ways, it was um, fine. Right, there was sort of this culture in the high school that I went to of a few girls who were very similar. And so we really accepted each other and were able to explore what that meant. But it was all behind the scenes. No one was really public about it. We weren't out dating as girlfriends, but maybe behind the scenes, people would kiss each other, make out, and just experiment. So I felt really that was a positive experience. But it wasn't until I went to college and actually really fell in love and was dating a woman that I had the experience of coming out as not straight. And I went to an alternative college in Westchester. And so there was a lot of people, there was a big queer community there already. So it was a safe place to be. Um, and thankfully I have a pretty progressive family. So my family supported it. They were fine with it. And growing up in New York city, of course, I mean, I did grow up with a lot of homophobia as well around me, but also it's one of the, you know, queer capitals of the world. Right. So I was very fortunate in that regards. And even with all of those benefits of a family that was supportive of, you know, these cultures I was in that it was sort of allowed and accepted and around me, it still wasn't necessarily easy. I still had to explore the internalized homophobia that um, had been within. And but when it, you say explore internalized yeah. homophobia, did you have a? Can you recall having a feeling like maybe there's something wrong with me, or maybe yeah, I shouldn't or, be this way, or there's some you know there's some shaming and so on? Yeah, I think it was more like being affectionate in public. Right. Just walking down the street and holding my girlfriend's hand and feeling uncomfortable. Right. In a way that I wouldn't feel uncomfortable if I was walking down the street holding the hand of a man. Right. So that the fear of being judged by others is really the way I initially was like, oh, I'm surprised by this. I didn't realize this was in me. The fear of being judged by others, which yeah. so many of us suffer from, haven't we, in our lives? Mm -hmm. And how did your attraction to women play out with the men that you were dating as a college student or as a young person? How did they feel about it? Or did you tell them? Yeah, I did tell them. They knew about it. Um, I think that was a time in the 90s and 2000s where it was kind of hot, you know, and, and there's some um, challenges that come with that, you know, being objectified as a bisexual woman and men sort of eroticizing that and objectifying it. Um, but I didn't receive any negative pushback from it. Yeah. 
thankfully. Okay, yeah. so take us along the yeah. next step in your path. Yeah, so then fast forward some years later, and I was in a monogamous marriage with a man, and I'm working as a therapist, and I have couples coming to me, and all the couples I had in one week come to me to try to figure out if they want to do non-monogamy. And professionally, even though personally I had some experience with it, I had no experience with it professionally. And so it kind of felt like it came to me and I needed to figure it out fast because I really In other words, a coincidence that a certain number of couples were all interested and they came to you as, where were you practicing at the time? I was practicing in Boulder, Colorado at the time. Okay. Yeah. And, And three different couples in the same week brought up the topic of, we're reading this or one of us wants to explore non-monogamy and, and we want help. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. What next? So it felt like a sink or swim moment professionally for me. And I did my homework. I started doing research. I didn't find much out there to support me professionally of how to support non-monogamous clients. So I really had to figure it out. And that's sort of the body of work of my books is what I have figured out along the way to help people navigate this lifestyle, this orientation of being non-monogamous. And tell us some about what non-monogamous means. Yeah, it's an umbrella. For the persons who are listening to this for the first time, or maybe it's just some fantasy they've heard about in the movies But what does it really mean to be non-monogamous? Yeah, so consensual non-monogamy or ethical non-monogamy, that's an umbrella term for people who are practicing being in love, romantic, or sexual with more than one person, and everybody knows about it. Everyone's agreeing that this is the structure they're doing, whereas non-monogamy that's cheating would be someone is having more than one lover um, or emotional connection and it's not everyone knows about it which is the, pretty much been the standard in this country the right, cheating exactly the cheating model the cheating, right? right so people espouse monogamy but in practice they're often doing non-monogamy at least statistically where they're cheating they're having emotional affairs sexual affairs yeah do you happen to have any data on how many people what percentage of couples in this country are, quote, cheating, unquote? Yes. So the data um, varies depending on who did the study, but they find that some men, as many as 50% of men admit to having cheated. And depending on the study, 20 to 40% of women have admitted to cheating in what was considered a monogamous relationship. And does the research go any deeper than the word cheating in terms of what percentage are actually having relationships with, think, with other people? Because I, cheating could be a one-night stand. A one-time you meet somebody, thing. you know, exactly. you know, in the bar or somebody who's a consecutive cheater who yeah. continuously does, but they're not necessarily... Who, who's that? <laughs> who, who <laughs> Sorry about that. Is, is that your doggy? I'm watching my mom's dog, so whenever something drives by, they just bark. (laughs) Okay. I live with three dogs, so I'm quite used to it. So do we know more about the difference between what we might call 
consecutive cheaters and those who are actually having relationships. Yeah, I, I don't know those numbers, but I think studies have looked at the type of cheating that goes on. Yes. Okay. Dr. Heath Schessinger, who I work with at the Modern Family Institute, and I hear you're joining us, as mm -hmm. a matter of fact. That's there. right. Uh, Heath tells me that uh, 5% of the United States identify as non-monogamous. Yes. And similarly... Meaning, meaning real relationships. They're not yes. just, uh, quote, you know, right. Right. It's not just occasional sex on the side, but actually relationships. And some studies break that down into age. So they're saying two millennials, sometimes it's as many as 30% are identifying as being non-monogamous. You know, we, we have something here that needs to be pulled apart a bit. And that is those who are having relationships outside of their primary relationship that include sex and those that are having relationships outside of their primary relationship, but that does not include sex. Mm -hmm. And I think it's an important differentiation because when I've been talking to people about my research and, you know, I'm writing a book on, on this topic and the work with the Modern Family Institute, Amongst people who are educated people but are uneducated about this particular topic, the first thing that comes up is, well, it's about sex. That's they, right. Uh, what's going on is they just want to fuck other people, and so they're making up a whole construct about it. Exactly. Right? Right. So let's, please talk to us about that, about those two groups. Yeah, well, it's actually Heath's research that shows that when you ask people, you know, what are the benefits or why are they being non-monogamous, sex doesn't come up as the top three answers that they give. What comes up more is the experience of more support and love in their life, um, more non-sexual activities that they get to do with people, and sort of the opportunity for personal growth that having multiple relationship offers. Yeah, so it's sort of the stereotype is that people are just doing it for sex, but that's not actually the case for a lot of people. And I also want to allow if it is the case, right? Why do we have to pathologize wanting multiple sexual partners? That is an important question. I'd like you to say that again. Yeah, right. What's wrong with wanting to have sex with more than one person? And okay. we want, yeah. Well, we better dive right into that. <laughs> right. Instead, but instead of framing it as what's wrong with wanting to have sex with more than one person, I'm going to frame it as tell us about the complications, the yeah. complexities that come with having sex with more than one person. Yeah. The complexities can be having to manage STIs in a way that if you're with one person, you don't have to have those conversations or think about it or worry about it or do testing to the same degree as you're sharing fluids with multiple people and have potential. Okay, so one is physical safety is physical a complication. Physical safety and, and health can be a complication. 
Okay. Um, managing time, right? So the resource of time and how much time do we have to offer multiple people and the reality of our schedule and our busyness. Please tell us something about managing time because when I read your book, uh, your books actually, mm-hmm. it, the time issue is overwhelming. I, I, I can't, <laughs> I can almost not imagine. I mean, I actually came away thinking the only people who are going to be able to pull this off and, <laughs> and create a new model of the way we are with each other are the very wealthy because mm-hmm. I, I'm look I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about a couple. They both go to work. You come home from work, you get home at about five or six and then you first decide whether you're going to stay with each other or you're going to go with one of the other people that you're connected with. And then, I mean, it's already seven o'clock. I mean, how do you, and, and then, and then the next night and, and how do you create some form of stability and how do you arrange the schedule and how many different partners can you do that with? And then when do you get to spend time with With your primary, (laughs) with with yourself? Good point. Right. Tell yeah. us tell us about some of these things. You have both personal and professional experience, but I am a you know, I live a, a somewhat complicated life with yeah. various occupations and so on, but managing four three of two or three or four relationships it's it seems daunting. So tell us how yeah. that works out in yeah. practice and with your patients, please. Right. Yeah. Well, some people do it really well, and I'm amazed at them too, right? Because that's what this is what I feel has been my biggest struggle is time management. Um, but some people, they've got calendars, monthly calendars. Everyone in, gives input. They have certain nights a week where they're with these partners, and those partners are all together. Uh, they've got childcare figured out, and it's pretty incredible. What happens, though, is it needs to be a well-oiled system, right? And then when something falls off, you know, Um, it can be challenging, right? So, but I see people who are able to do it. I see people living together in community. So they're not necessarily wealthy, but they're living more in a communal way. And that seems to really make it a lot easier. Tell us a little bit about the communal living experiment. Yeah, so it could be multiple people living in the same house. It could be um, that maybe people live in different homes, but they like regularly come together and spend time in an extended way with each other. And then, of course, there are communities um, that, you know, are exploring something like Tamara in Portugal, I think, that are exploring um, actually living really in a community community um, and, and how the impacts of of love and relationships and what that looks like. I've heard some about Tamara. Tell me a little bit about Tamara. Yeah, I haven't been there. I've just, you know, been following them for a while. Oh, you and have also. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but my sense is, you know, they're looking at this, right, that we can't just live in a regenerative community and not look at how we relate to sexuality and romance and love. How many people are living together there? Do you I'm know? Sure. I think it's a few hundred. Yeah, but someone else listening probably knows the exact number. (laughs) Okay, well, for those listening who are interested, you might want to just go a little deeper and check out the Tamara community in Portugal. Right. Let's get get back to what we know and have direct experience with. Yeah, so um, 
people do manage their time well, and then for a lot of people, it's difficult. And what the consequence of that could be having multiple relationships that just feel like they're not getting enough time. And it's hard to establish a bond and meet those attachment needs of a relationship when we're not getting the time that we need or the sense of consistency. Right? But a lot of people also, I would say that's when we're wanting an attachment-based relationship. And many people are non-monogamous, and that might not be what they want. They're okay seeing someone occasionally, once a month, while they travel, and that works for them. And w when they're seeing that someone, is is it necessarily sexual, or is it just is it not necessarily? It could be either. Uh, they could be either, exactly. Then how is it different from what we call friendship? Right. I think in my book, I um, use a term that others have used to called polyintimates, where there can be people that we're not necessarily sexual with, but there might be uh, friends doesn't cut it as the right phrase to use. It doesn't feel platonic. It might feel like there's more of a romantic element to it um, or a sense of partnership, right? Like platonic partnership um, that, you know, has come out of sort of more queer community where people are sharing life together, they're making decisions together, maybe even raising children together. So saying like friend doesn't capture, you know, the depth and breadth of certain relationships. Are you comfortable talking about your own personal situation? I am. Yeah, happily. Okay. So tell us about your situation, uh, I think with David. Yeah. Uh, right. And, uh, and by the way, I, you know, I got to the section at the very end of the book mm -hmm. where, where he talks about himself and I, you can pass on to him that I had, I seen that earlier, I would have invited him to be part of this interview as well. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure no he'd offense, love to be on. Yeah. No offense meant, but I think he would, he would add a lot. Maybe we'll do another interview with him or with you and him at another time. Absolutely. So, so tell us about your relationship, you know, how it has, how it began and how it has has progressed over the years. How yeah, so we've been together in each other's lives for 21 years. We actually met in Northern 21? California. 21 years, yeah. We met in 2002 in Northern California at a massage school. And we had an initial spark of a romance. And being in community and at massage school, it just wasn't something that was going to work for us then. Um, so we were very close friends. We were friends for several years. And then we got together. We got married. We had a son. We were polyamorous and married. And then you were we what? Polyamorous and married. You, you, uh, well, how did the polyamory come about? Give us a little, you know, fill in the dots. Yeah, yeah. It was actually through um, well, something we had talked about before we got married because I'm bisexual and yet it was always on the back burner. And then this week I talk about that my clients came to me with their non-monogamy. It really awoken in me like, oh, wait, I've done this before and I want to do it now. And so we took walks for a few weeks and talked about what it would be like, what we imagine. And we felt like, yeah, this we want to do this. This feels right for us, and we did. And it it's the up until up until then, 
You'd been a heterosexual, I mean, a, you'd been a, a monogamous couple. We had been a monogamous couple, but we were non-traditional where I had male friends and female friends. He had female friends. Sometimes we would have trips or overnights with those friends. So there was a sense of really emotional intimacy that was deep with other people. And there was a lot of space in our relationship for that where other people would probably feel afraid that that was too close, you know, to be with somebody else in a more traditional relationship. So right. we already had that, but then we opened it up more to actually, you know, romantic sexual relationships. And we can come back to that experience, but just, you know, him and I several years um, after that got divorced and we lived apart for about a year, year and a half. And now we have come back together. We've been living together. And How? Uh, wait a second. Yeah. Was was the the polyamory, if we'll use that term for mm -hmm. now? Um, I have concerns with the terminology that we're all using. By the way, I I really don't like uh, consensual non monogamy mm. because uh, I I don't care for it at all because. It defines the people who are in, ex experimenting with this way in terms of what they're not. We're yes. not. not. And I don't yeah. like I don't like I think it's somewhat insulting to yeah. in, to to, to in, in any way describe people in terms of what they're not instead yes. of what they really are. Yes. But that that said, we're using right now these words uh, temporarily. Yes, so, but Polyamory was is the, the right word for what we were practicing. Okay, which means yeah. more than one friend and more than one lover, more than one intimate association than the primary. Yes, that we're actually in a relationship with other people, in love yes. with those people, right? forming attachments and bonds with those people, and even yes. challenging the hierarchy of our own marriage. Now, to what extent... Did this experimentation lead to the divorce? Yeah, I wouldn't were you, want to. Were you, were you suffering from what some friends of mine in the profession have called polyagony? Polyagony. There was polyagony for sure. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that that was the cause of the divorce. I think the opening up process exposed things in our dynamic that we didn't have to address in monogamy, but then we, ha we couldn't not address is polyamorous. And could you get that, could you think of examples? I can, yeah. So there was a dynamic in our relationship that was codependent that we didn't even see really in the monogamous context where there's certain ways I would overfunction and certain ways he would underfunction. And in non-monogamy and polyamory, you realize, oh, I can't really be codependent with this partner and have space in my life for somebody else. I have to stop participating in these codependent behaviors over here, right? But his pacing and my pacing of addressing that was different. You know, in some of those dynamics, we really felt like we needed to have that separation in order to reestablish ourselves in a more interdependent way, which we have, we feel like we have now. So you literally got divorced. We literally got divorced, yeah. And then how, how long were you divorced for? Before you got back together, we were divorced. Well, we about a year and a half, and then we moved in together again. 
and we're not sexual and romantic, but we are family. We consider each other life partners. We're co-parents. We run a home together and we have written a book together as well. We're creative partners. So it's, it's a very so intimate would you, relationship. Would you say, would you, is it fair to say that you and he are in what might be called a primary relationship? To a, a degree, yeah. Yeah, it's a primary relationship. And we each and, have... And, uh, you have... And what is the nature of the commitment that you have to each other? Yeah, so we... Um, when we got divorced, we actually did a ceremony where we released our vows, our wedding vows, and then we recommitted. And so we've recommitted as parents and we've recommitted as like life humans, life partners that are here to support each other in life, in our growth, in the hard times. I think our technical words were like, I've got your back in this life. That's what we've committed to. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh -huh. Now, what about the legalities? Aren't you losing out or are you gaining <laughs> from from the legal? When I say losing out or, ga or gaining, I'm thinking of things like, like social, se yeah, social, social security, totally. the tax benefits, life insurance, various things that people have to deal with. Yeah, we we technically right probably are losing out on some of those, um, but we each have other partners as well, and yeah, the the enmeshment that being legally married created does not feel like something that either of us wants to return back to. Is your, is your, is your son living with the two of you or is he uh -huh. already old enough to have left the, 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 the nest? He's nine. So he's still at home. Oh, he's nine. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so the, th the three of you are living together. Now, when you just said we each have other partners, mm -hmm. I noticed that you use the word partners, plural. Yes. Well, currently he has one other partner and currently I have one other partner. And tell us about what that having that other partner for each of you literally looks like in terms of functioning in the real world. Yeah. So each of our partners also have children of a few years older than our son and they have their own households. And so usually like uh, my partner will usually spend the night two or three nights a week. He has shared custody with his ex, right? So, or me and my son might go and spend the night at his place with his kids. So yeah. in your case, your other partner is a male, not mm -hmm. a female. That's right. Yeah. But it could be just as well a female. It could be. Yes, it could be. It just happens in this case. It's a in male. In this moment, yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Now, tell us something about the effect of this on your son. He's nine years old. Mm -hmm. Mom's leaving the house with me. I'm going with my mom, and I'm going to some other guy's house. Right. Uh, who is this other guy, and what am <laughs> he... I doing here with him? <laughs> right. So, you know, that's not something. We didn't start from that place. Right. There was probably a good six months of me dating this partner before I even introduced him to my son because I tend to be I tend to wait and to feel like, OK, is this really going to be something that's continuing? And once it felt like that, um, he met my son and he would be around the house or we would go over there, but we wouldn't spend nights. 
and my son adores him and he loves his kids as well. And so then when it's the night to go sleep at his house, my son's excited because it's, you know, a positive experience for him. And there's things that he gets out of that other adult in his life from both ends, Dave's other partner as well. Dave's partnered with a woman. Um, these are extra positive role models and adults in his life that care about him. And so he really loves having that extra attention. And yeah, but and we've never dismantled that we as his parents are his primary attachment figures. And that, you know, that has stayed in place for him. So he hasn't had the loss of either one of us. Our polyamory has felt more like an addition. Now, can you see this other relationship with this gentleman going on for years? Or do you see it as a temporary? Or how do you sort of view it in yeah, your life? We see it as going on for years. That's our intention and our hope. And... You know, we don't have official plans, but we're hoping that as time goes on, there might be cohabitating together and figuring that out. And within this series of relationships that you have with Dave, who's your primary, mm -hmm. and with this other man, you also mentioned in the book that you might additionally be dating. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's part of when I got like, where does where do you find time? Oh, for currently, that? I mean, no, currently I don't have the time. Yeah, that's I'm completely at my saturation point. Yeah, having all the things that I do, I couldn't be able to date more people. But you seem to imply in the book that some people might be able to handle oh, that. Absolutely, some people do. They have multiple partners. Um, they might consider one or two people their primaries. They might not use that terminology at all and might have several partners that they see as more non-hierarchical. Um, but I do know people that are married and they're in a marriage and they still have two or three partners. And I'm in, like you, I'm in awe that they have the time and space to do it. Dave, your partner, your former husband, talks in the book about how he felt when you first started having sexual relationships yeah. with other people. And it was very touching. Uh, that's why I said I sort of wish he was here. Maybe we'll get him here. This has to be an occurring event with many people, if not all couples, who open up their relationship in some way. Mm -hmm. So talk to us now about tactics, procedures that you recommend, including yeah. possibly going into your heart program Mm -hmm. talk to us about how to deal with yeah. what we all call jealousy. <laughs> right. Exactly. And amazingly, not everyone experiences this, but yes, a lot of people struggle with jealousy, struggle with this sense of primal attachment, panic, their partner's off having sex with someone else and they feel like they're literally going to die. That's the kind of intensity that their nervous system is going through. And so it's a multi-pronged approach. It's dealing with our own nervous system, learning how to regulate, um, learning how to do self-regulation, figuring out our own trauma history is usually something we need to explore there and what healing is needed. And then what are the attachment needs that need to get bolstered relationally? 
so that we're not going into something that Dave describes, you know, in that story of his primal panic. It sounds like uh, couples who are looking to engage in this form of social experimentation would do well with a guide. It's, it sounds similar to me to what we're telling people with psychedelics, with psych- psychedelic. Right? Exactly. Exactly. You, be- you, you better, yeah. if you're going to go on this plane ride, you better have a co-pilot who's known, who knows how to fly the plane or you're going to crash. For a lot. Yes, obviously. I mean, that's the work that I'm doing in the world is helping people navigate this different way of relating and loving and having sexuality. Um, and so, of course, I'm biased and would say I agree. I think people benefit from having a guide and having that support. Yeah. Just I can, like a, I can, I, I can almost not, It's hard to imagine going into this without having a, a, some kind of weekly commitment to hours processing. Mm-hmm. If you just try to fly and go, it's like going up in an airplane for the first time and having no co-pilot. I mean, how the hell, how do you fly the plane? It would be, right. a, it'd be an awful lot of, cr- a lot of crashing. Yeah. And it does happen, right? Um, people are excited to do it or they want to try it or they feel like it's what they're most drawn to within themselves. And still, there can be a lot of crashing that happens unintentionally or in ways people didn't expect. So, yes, having the support of guides that can help you, professional guides, um, friendships, making new polyamorous friends, even looking at communities, listening to podcasts, you know, all of those things are ways to support living in a different paradigm. During the times of my life, a hundred years ago, that I was engaged in polyamorous relationships. One of the biggest difficulties we had was there was no one to talk to about it. We were the only people we knew who, I mean, we heard about others, but you didn't bump into them anywhere. And it wasn't a topic that you, quote, talk to because you'd be seen as weird. And with myself... As a doctor of clinical psychology, I was concerned about my reputation. Mm-hmm. And one of the, you know, one of the worst things you can do for your reputation in our culture, certainly at that time, was to be engaged in something unusual sexually. Right. Because, you know, the biggest no-no of all. Right. Let to be alone seen to be as de- sexually deviant in some way. Exactly. That word, deviant. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was uh, awkward and challenging from that perspective. Now, it seems that there are, in, in Heath's, Heath's research, 5% of the population, that's 15 million people. Mm-hmm. That means, you know, there are people to talk to. Do you have a sense of how this transition has, has a transition come to, came about or has this always been going on, but more like myself, it was more sort of undercover. I mean, we yeah. didn't really hide it. We just weren't open about it. Yeah. But I think, yes, I think my understanding is this has always been going on. And as you started this whole t- conversation with, you know, that this actually isn't 
tradition monogamy hasn't actually traditionally been what's happened um so we could go far back into history and people talk about other times other cultures that non-monogamy was more openly practiced but if we think of what we know of you know the last one or 200 300 years within this society um i think it actually has been happening but people were not as open it was more behind closed doors but now it's you know since the sexual re revolution um since the internet the world has so changed right so there's all these places now social spaces online spaces that people can connect with each other that they don't have to be in proximity and so i think that's really changed um the opportunity for these things to become more out in the open and I think we have a lot to credit to, you know, the gay rights movement that's come before, the gender movements, even I think the trans movement has done just amazing work that set the stage for now monogamy to start to become deconstructed at a societal level. And there's still a far way to go with all of these movements, but, you know, they've paved the way. You know, in your situation that you described, your other partner is evidently a married man who's in a relationship. He's not married right now, no. He's single. Yes. Well, he's with me, and he was previously married. But he lives alone or alone with his child part-time. Yes. yes. Okay. And maybe your Dave is with a woman yes. part-time. Is she with somebody or is she alone? Um, I don't know at this moment. I think it depends. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, here's the example I'm thinking of and where yeah. I'm going with this line of thinking. You two are together. You have a lifelong commitment you've made. Dave connects with a woman who's single. Mm -hmm. And she's living alone, has her own life. And they're going to have a long-term relationship. Mm -hmm. This isn't just a quickie. Right. Okay. You and he are living together, and you've got that living together bond, whether you have yeah. the legal marriage or not. But right. you're living together with a child. From a socio-political perspective, until we have new language for what she is, she is in a one-down position socio-politically because she's going to be viewed as, quote, the girlfriend. You see, you have a better title. You're either the wife or the primary. I mean, I right? think he would, but he would consider her his primary partner in terms of where his in-love, romantic, and sexual energy goes. Well, he, he could consider that. Yeah. But until they're living together and they make that de facto, she isn't because you, you the primary person is the person that you're under the roof with because that's the evidence. You, yeah. You can, you can say it's something else, but when you come, when you're sharing the house and sharing the food and sharing the responsibility for the in house child, it's hard to see someone else as being the primary. Yeah, so, I think, I think you see what I, where I'm going. We need I, new, 
We need, we new, need language. new language. Yeah, yes. I, know, I see where you're going because him and I don't experience it that way. Like we don't think, oh, we're each other's primaries and our partners are secondary. That's not how we're actually living at all. But we acknowledge are there certain areas that we have a primary ship like living together, right? But my other partner comes over and he does help in my house in ways that Dave doesn't, right? And I get the benefit of that from that relationship as well. Um, yeah. But the, so there's there also, does need to be more language. Yeah. There really is because, I mean, like in our friend Lily's situation, mm-hmm. if, right? She's married, as you know, to Alex. But Alex says to me, he has, quote, a girlfriend. I hope he doesn't mind me outing him this way. Well, in my perspective, in the great sociopolitical viewpoint, the girlfriend is one down from the wife. And that's not that's not fair. That's not fair to Alex. It's not fair to the woman. It's not fair to Lily. There's no reason why this other, quote, strong relationship, whether it's primary or not, should be in a one-down situation. Do you get my where I'm going with that? I do. I mean, I think you're getting potentially at the legalization of having multiple partners, right? Not just one, right? Yes. And, and really looking at how we share or can include resources, whether it's like insurance or inheritance, right? That it shouldn't, it's not fair that it's just with one person a lot of the time. Yes. In fact, I interviewed an interesting man this week. I don't know if you know him, David J. And, so. and, and David got invited to be in a polyamorous relationship or poly relationship with a married couple so that they would have children together. Mm-hmm. And David adopted the children at birth, and he is now on the birth certificate of both of the children as a uh, legally as a second father. Yeah. And, and that's the kind of thing that I think is extremely important and strong. So he doesn't have, quote, a secondary role. He is a partner on the birth certificate. He's a father and they live together. They share the, the expenses of the home and the food and everything else. You might refer to them as a triple instead of a couple. Yeah, a triad. Yeah. Or a, a thruple, a thruple or a thruple. triad, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. And that's a great example of people getting creative. I mean, people are also doing things where they're creating trusts so that multiple people own the house or have inheritance, you know, that it's not just legally the married couple has those benefits. Jessica, we're perhaps inadvertently stressing the positives of this exper- these experimentation. Mm-hmm. But we know it comes, as does all pioneering work, with mm-hmm. a lot of challenges. And you have a little acronym called HEART yeah. that you put together that you recommend to the people you work with. P- take us through the heart in the little time we have left so yeah. that our listeners can have a takeaway of some Great. good stuff, please. Yeah. So the last, the one, the last third of my book, Polysecure, is really sort of a how-to. Okay, you want to have multiple attachment relationships, yeah, or it could be just with one person um, that you want to enhance your attachment experience. And so I came up with Hearts, which um, H stands for here. So for focusing on how your 
in presence, right? The here-ness, being here together. E is expressed delight. How do we let our partner know that they're loved? It's not just the love language. Um, it's, it's the way that we communicate in multiple ways, not just with our words that we adore and admire and delight in the aliveness of our partner. H Give us some more examples. No, I want more examples, examples? Of, expressed, of expressed delight. Expressed delight. It could be the way you touch your partner as you're walking by. It could be the, uh, the classic thing is called the beam gleam, the way that we're just our eyes when we look at our loved one gives that sense of like, it says, I love you, right? It kind of oozes out of us, the way that we smile at each other, the way you look a second longer with that person than maybe with somebody else. The way that we touch, um, the way that our voice changes, right? The things that we say, the little things that we do. Okay, the so way the, that, the first one was H is for the here and now, to right, be present, being present, to be right. fully present. When yes. you're with the person and looking at the person, your, your mind isn't a million miles away. You're not thinking about work, about your cell phone, your computer, your dog, exactly. all that other stuff. It's you're giving quality. that other person quality time of being present. Exactly. That's the H, here and now. That's the H. Okay. The, the E the is second one delight, right, is the way that ways we're in valuing of expressing and... not just right. not just appreciation, but delight. Mm-hmm. What it, what you love about being with that other person. Yes. To, to exactly. remind ourselves to express that to them, right? Right. Not just, oh, I'm grateful for what you do for me, but I just take delight in who you are. I love who you are and the ways that we communicate that to someone. Okay. The next is A, which is attunement, which is about um, the emotional connection, being emotionally attuned, tuning into our partner's interior experience, caring about our partner's feelings and needs and the interiority of what's going on for them behind the scenes. So that emotional intimacy piece would be... What would be examples of that uh, verbally? It could just be how are you for real, right? Not that surface level, how are you, I'm fine, but like how are you really doing? Or um, how is that landing with you that this thing just happened, right? Or what's going on in your heart, right? Um, How do you feel about this thing? Or I know you've been you know, have this thing at work that you've been going through. I want to hear more about it, right? So just that sense of curiosity, leaning in towards, I want to really know the inside of my partner, what goes on in their heart, their mind, even their body. Okay, that's the H in H-E-A. Yes. So R is for rituals and routines. Um, This can be the mundane, everyday routines that we have with partners, the hellos, the goodbyes. The breakfast, the coffee, uh, the messaging, you know, it's not about living together necessarily. Um, when we're together, the little things that we do together that feel like they're ours are special things. Um, they can also oh, be you know, the you make those You make those sound easy, but they're really yeah. not. I no, mean, like, not necessarily. You know, yeah. They're really not. You know, my wife and I make up. We're going to kiss each other hello. We're going to kiss each other goodbye. And then all of a sudden we forget. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. So that's why it's something that, you know, in my book, there's questions about what are the routines that are meaningful, that support feeling secure together, that enhance your bond, right? And what are the rituals that could be 
ceremonies that you have together or uh, end of the year reflections that you like to do or that place you go to once a year, right? The different rituals of the relationship that sort of mark it in certain ways or acknowledge a loss or an escalation or a deepening of commitment. Do you have a recommendation for an amount of time ideally let's go ideal mm -hmm. an ideal amount of time for a couple to spend together each week just being together without reading a book without watching yeah. television I just don't, yeah i don't have a recommended amount of time i'm when i'm working with people i'm more curious about the amount of time they need and negotiating that because I see people can have really different ideas of what that time need is for them. So figuring that out is what I would recommend. But it does need yeah. to be at least weekly, doesn't it? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's I what think I would so. Recommend. A, I think so also. I know that's what I need. And usually that's what my clients need is even more than once a week where there's sort of this dropping in time yes. together. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, indeed. Yeah. And I, th I think that's one of the most important things that we can convey to our listeners, Jessica. Yes. Is, is the importance of making a weekly time that is just time for the people without it being time for anything else in the world. Exactly. For the two people to be yeah. present with each other for that period of time. Exactly. Yes. Okay, and I need to jump off in a minute, but let's finish the hearts. So the, the yes, tea, let's finish the heart. Yeah. Um, so the T is turning towards after conflict. It's all how we do conflict management, how we manage our own triggers, and really when there's been a rupture, instead of turning away from each other, we really build our capacity and skill set to turn towards each other and repair. Yes, and here. You, you refer to the great John Gottman. Exactly. And I, re and I refer our listeners to John Gottman as well, because what John says is it's not the intensity or the frequency of your fighting. It's how quickly and deeply you repair. Yeah. It's about repairing. It's about solutions. And that's what we need to remember. It's about repairing and solutions. Okay, you've got exactly. to go. Yes, I but last tell. but not least is the S, which is yes. secure attachment with self. So it's how do we heart ourselves? How are we present with ourselves? How do we value ourselves? Attune to our own needs and feelings, our own rituals and routines to stay healthy and in our own wellness, and as well as um, our own inner conflicts. How do we work with our inner critic? How do we work with our inner uh -huh. shame and the ways we might feel disappointed by ourselves? So that we really need that secure attachment with self um, as one of the parts of being in a secure relationship with somebody else. Nope. Are you there? We, you had, there? we had a little, yeah, a we little had a little glitch. Yes. A little technical glitch. So I'm going to let you go. Uh, okay. I think, I feel like we've just sort of scratched the surface. We've just begun. <laughs> I, ho I hope you'll come back. We'll do, yeah. we'll do a, another interview, maybe with David as well. Jessica Fern, thank you so much for being yeah. with us today. Thank Again, you, Richard. Again, here's one of Jessica's books. I'll hold the one of the other ones up for <laughs> you to see. So we'll get that in. Please take a look. 
you want to watch, look out for Jessica DeFern's work. Thank you for being with us today. And thank you all, our gentle listeners.